Have you ever messed up in public so bad that you just wanted to curl up and die? Yeah, we've all been there and we have all survived those embarrassing moments and learned from them. Welcome to episode 27 where I talk with Jerry Page about what she learned about both failure and resilience when she took a chance in the stand-up comedy world. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. Ask any average person why they haven't accomplished their goals yet, and more often than not, their answer will be because they are afraid that they will fail. We as humans tend to have a fear of failure, not because we lack the confidence in our ability to master something over time, but because in our modern society, we are so obsessed with success and perfection that we have made failure a socially unacceptable behavior. Like most of our shitty self-sabotaging behaviors, we began to fear failure in school. Why? Well, because in school, the most successful students are the ones who make the fewest mistakes. When given a scholastic test, the answer is either correct or incorrect. You don't get a chance to go back and work through the answer you got wrong to understand why you answered that question incorrectly and how you could have worked towards the correct answer in a different way. They don't teach failure 101 in school. They teach pass or fail, right or wrong, correct or incorrect. Without teaching us how to learn from our failures, we are taught only to be embarrassed by them and to fear repeating them. What's the scariest thing to fail at? Public speaking? Stand-up? Improv, maybe? Most of us would shit our pants when put in that scenario. But you know what the best comedic minds have in common? They have all failed. They have all bombed at one point or another on their journey to honing their craft, to being really funny, to having the perfect stand-up set. Every comedian fails. You cannot learn if your jokes are funny unless you try them out on people, and those people will either laugh or they will sit in silence while you wait for them to laugh. Which, if your joke sucks, they won't. You need to fail over and over again to succeed in comedy. It cannot be avoided. The funniest bits are retooled and restructured by bouncing ideas off of peers, feeling the pangs of rejection from an audience, and reworking it until you finally unlock what will make that joke work. Comedians know what we should have been taught in school. You can't find out if something works until you break it apart. And that is exactly what our guest did today. Without ever having been in front of a live audience or even trying her hand at comedy before, Jerry Page signed up for not only a stand-up class, but an improv class too. Simply because she was interested in it and has always wondered if she was funny. But what she got out of it was a mechanism for overcoming her fear of failure. So what are the lessons she learned on that stage, in that spotlight, in front of an audience? And which of those lessons has she been able to apply to her business as a life alignment coach and a business launch coach? What has she been able to teach her clients about failure? Hello, Jerry. Thanks for being here. I know a lot of the people who just listened to that introduction said, no fucking way. I'm not ever going to do that. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. There was a point where I said, there's no fucking way I'm going to do this. 
So did you have friends who were like, oh, my friends think I'm funny? Or did you always just think you were funny? Because my husband laughs at me all the time. He's like, you think you're so funny. And I'm like, I am funny. But I don't think I would get up in front of a crowd and determine if other people thought I was funny. Yeah, it was something where I was in this very exploratory part of my life and I was trying to just pull on the threads of things that interested me. And I thought, you know what? I like making people laugh. Some of my closest friends and family members, the people who really know me say I'm hilarious. So what if other people thought I was hilarious? What if, and also, honestly, I started watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and I got really (gasps) stoked about the possibility of being like her. I love that show and she is so funny. But the the lie in that show is that she doesn't work on a bit like she just gets up and she tells her life and her life is hilarious. And that's just not the way comedy works. So tell us how comedy worked for you, what it was like going through that class and what you learned about repetition and figuring out what works and what doesn't, because I think that's a lesson for everything. That's a lesson for business. That's a lesson for life. Not everything's going to work on the first try. What did you learn about repetition and retooling? Yes, that was the biggest sort of slap in the face in terms of reality versus what you think it was going to be like is having the the perception that you can just get on a stage and tell a story and ramble a little bit and it's going to be slapstick funny and everyone's going to love it. We had an exercise in the first class of my stand-up course where everyone was told to just get up and just wing it for three minutes and everyone bombed. Like there might've been a few laughs in the class, but the whole point was, this is not the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. There is work required. You might be funny in day-to-day life, but in terms of getting on a stage and performing, there is a lot to it, a lot more to it than what the eye sees from the crowd. So comedy is subjective. So you're going to have, say say you're in front of a an audience of a hundred people and you tell a joke and maybe 50 of them think that joke is hilarious. And maybe 50 of them think that joke is really offensive. How do you create something for a subjective audience? It is very interesting. It has, there's so many variables. And so I myself was in front of a room of a hundred plus people in my first stand-up show. And there were so many things that contributed to when you got the laughs and when you didn't, and that kind of set you up for an inherent failure, even outside of whether or not the joke might, may have been funny if these things didn't exist. Like people were eating during the show and they're focusing on their food and they're ordering with the waitress while they're doing that. They're sort of like a focus element. It was a very long, wide room. So people in the back might not have heard everything as clearly. There are all these variables that you have to take into account whenever you walk into any situation in life. And you have to know as a part of the experience that the reaction that you get that may or may not be in alignment with the expectation you have isn't 100% on you. And it's not 100% on the joke. So when you went up there with your bit, did you have points where you expected a laugh and it just didn't happen? When you give a punchline, like there's a way that you give it and then there's this break for for laughter and what if it doesn't come? There were many times like that. I would say at least half of my, like my setup and then my delivery was met by, if not absolute silence, but like just a few titters or even worse, just the very loud laughter of my friends. Matt Washington accomplished. 
Uh, about a week later, I received a call. Um, excuse me, ma'am, we regret to inform you that we have found your missing boyfriend. He was on the side of a mountain, frozen, clutching a bucket of half-eaten chicken wings. And you know what? It was really actually interesting uh, to stand up there and to hear the deafening silence. And part of the lesson was just continuing through it, knowing that you have this internal engine of motivation and you're not getting affected so much by the silence. You just keep going with it. That was a huge part of it. Because you have a bit, you have to go from beginning to middle to end, right? Yeah, like, what are you going to do? Just crumble on stage and be like, do you want me to tell it again? Did you get it? Like, are you sure? <laughs> that was not an option. So you just keep on chugging along. A really big part of stand-up is delivering a very, very rehearsed routine and making it feel like it's not rehearsed at all. Yeah. I mean, I rehearsed my bit eight times in front of a small audience before I got on stage in front of a hundred plus people. And it went differently every single time, every yeah. single time. Um yeah, as a professional speaker, you know, my keynotes are very similar, you know, from one event to another, but it's different. like what resonates with one audience is completely different than what resonates in another audience, depending on sometimes it's me, it's my delivery. Sometimes it's the room. Sometimes like, it's just, there's somebody in the audience and they're really getting it. And the person next to them is getting it. So yeah, it's totally like, I could give the same speech verbatim and it, it would land differently in each room. Right. And even you could deliver it to the same audience at different times of day and it might be received differently. And that is why the importance of just having your even keel inner engine going and not letting your failed expectations uh, dampen like your delivery is so important. So, but you, I'm assuming you had to learn that. I'm assuming the first time you gave your bit and when you expected a laugh and it didn't happen, you weren't as even keel that first, like, how did you learn that? You know, that's an interesting question. As I reflect back on the course and the other people that were in my class, no one actually struggled with that. I think it might be an expectation that we would struggle with that and that we would feel it. But there's a bit of an adrenaline rush whenever you're standing on stage in front of people, as you yep. know, yep. and it's almost like you're like, I just have to keep going yeah. and you survive it. And that's a little bit of actually a lot of a bit, the, the confidence builder of stand up in any sort of comedy is that you get out on the other end and no matter how it went, you survived it and you're fine. Yeah. And you're like, I can just do it again. That was great. I feel like it's that line that is always somebody goes, but did you die? <laughs> you know, like every time something's hard, you're like, oh my God, it was so hard. And somebody's like, but did you die? We're so afraid of failure, but it, it, failure is not what, what kills us. What kills us is the way our mind creates a scenario that is never going to happen and that we're not going to overcome. And that's what stops us from doing something. That's what kills us. Yeah, it's, it's all of the thought processes and the stories that we tell ourselves in advance yeah. are what the real problem is. So a lot of times whenever people come to me and say they're afraid of failure, I'll ask them what they're specifically afraid of. And it's often not the experience itself. It's not getting on stage and holding a microphone and telling jokes to people, even though that feels like what they're afraid of. It's the fear of judgment. Mm -hmm. It's the fear of not getting the level of laughter that they think that they want. It's the fear of going up there and tripping or even the fear of appearing to not be confident. 
And at the end of the day, those are all things that you can overcome with your mindset and your expectations. Right. So you did both. You did stand up and you did improv. How are they different? Because I'm imagining one is rehearsed. And if you do it long enough, you know where the laughs are going to come. And one is completely like, what the fuck is going to happen? Because this is improv. (laughs) You are so right. They are completely different worlds. And I tried improv first and I did not like it. (laughs) I was not a big fan of it because there, you are so very, very reliant on other people's decisions. And there was a huge lesson in that for me. I am a recovering perfectionist Mm -hmm. and I like going in with a plan. I like knowing the desired outcome. I like to have some level of influence or control over over the storytelling of a situation. And that is not the case in improv. You are at the total whim and will of your group. And they are also totally at the whim of you. And so whenever I got into that space, I found that I'm very reliant on that planning process. Mm -hmm. And I released that a little bit, but ultimately the number one Uh, rule of improv is yes and. So someone is going to come to you with a character or a scene and you do not go against it no matter what. You agree to it and you dive in even if it's like you're their Labrador retriever and you have to get down on all fours and you know like woof through through the next bit or set. It's just it's a really interesting experience and it teaches you that things don't always go the way you want them to but they ultimately work out. I imagine improv is about a lot about teamwork too. You can only control your own actions. So you can't control what the audience is going to say. You can't control if the person next to you is going to say, okay, you're my laboratory and start barking at me and hump my leg. But there's an element of teamwork there. If one person fails the bit, the whole bit fails. Yep. The teamwork is actually more important than anything else because if there's unconditional support, it's going to work out so much better. You can, you can sense the resistance. I showed up to so many different improv shows before I decided to actually take the course and they were pro. So this rarely happened, but every now and then you would feel someone like skip a beat or resist leaning into a scene. And you can sense that the lack of uh, engaged teamwork more than thinking like, "Ah, I didn't think that was super funny. Oh, interesting. So it's funny during this, (laughs) During this confidence series, this idea of perfectionism has come up a lot. Like that one of the one of the biggest confidence derailers is perfectionism. And I think Nicole, who I interviewed about confidence builders and confidence derailers, says that perfection is the number one killer of confidence. It, it doesn't seem like that's easy to get over. So tell me how stand-up and improv helped you past a level of perfectionism? Yes. And perfectionism is a big one for me. So whenever you are about to start any chapter in improv, you have no idea what it's going to be until 30 seconds before, maybe a minute. There's no opportunity for planning. And whenever there's no opportunity for planning, you can't really think about what the desired outcome is or where you want to go. And therefore there is no idea of perfect. I mean, first things first, perfection doesn't exist for anyone because it's so subjective, but in your own mind, what you think is perfect, it cannot exist. And so you go in just having to enjoy and live in the moment, moment by moment and work with your team. And whenever you realize that that actually works out most of the time, 
without you planning, without you just spending all this time in your mind and hoping for a very specific outcome, you start to realize that perfectionism isn't a requirement for success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> What you just said reminded me of this interview that I once saw with Michael Jackson. I might be a little bit older than you, but remember like the first time he did the moonwalk and he like moonwalked backwards and he got up on his toes in the dance. Do you remember this? Anyways, if you don't, people who, I don't. People who are as old as me are going to be like, yes, Julie, I know when Michael Jackson moonwalked and then got up on his toes. Anyways, it was iconic. Nobody had ever seen a moonwalk before. Like people were like, holy shit, what is this? You know? And I saw an interview with him and somebody was talking to him about like how amazing that moment was and how iconic it was. And all he could think of was, oh, but when I practiced it, I stayed up on my toes for like three seconds and I only stayed up on my toes for two seconds. And every single other person who watched that was like, hot damn, like how is this man doing these movements? This is amazing. And all he could think of was I was supposed to be up for three seconds. I wasn't up for two seconds. And it ruined the moment for him when all of us watching, all of us who are of a certain age watching, you know, thought it was so, I mean, it was the most amazing thing we'd ever seen. So I think the, the, there's a real, this is a really circuitous way of me saying somebody else's idea of perfection is so different than yours. Like his, what he did was perfect. It was perfection. But for him, it was a failure. So I think there's a lesson in there about, just being a little bit more kind to yourself about, am I looking at an unobtainable level of perfection here? Absolutely. And in stand-up, whenever you're on stage, you're the only one who knows your bit and how it's supposed to go. And if you go off of that routine, the audience has no idea. And so whenever you deviate off the path a little bit, you just keep going and you don't let anyone know because they have no idea. Right. Um, it's so helpful to watch other new comedians too, and see how they work and what works for them and what doesn't, what lands and, and what just goes silent. And because you see that every single person starts somewhere and that's a big element of perfectionism is that we have the marvelous Mrs. Maisels of the world. We see on TV, these comedians are at the very advanced stage of their journey. And if you look at anyone in any in industry in their life, the people that you're most likely going to see are in the advanced stage of their journey. You're not seeing their failures. You're not seeing the 25 shows or things that they did in the beginning that totally bombed or all the times they had to pick themselves back up. So we have to stop comparing the beginning of our journey with the middle or the end of someone else's. It's so great that you said that because Nicole Khalil, who I interviewed, said the same thing. She said, and her theory was, you know, we need to stop looking at uh, at social media and expecting our lives to look like the lives of people on social media because she said people on social media are only putting their highlight reel. That's only the best part of their day and it's staged and it's and half of the time it's fake. And we all know this. We all know people who are posting things online that their life is amazing and it's actually falling apart and they can't face it. But anyways, what you're saying is exactly true. Comparing someone's highlight reel to the part of your life that's ending up on the cutting room floor is not, it's not good for anybody. And I think that is like, that's the biggest thing right now with people is this comparison game and somehow thinking that, our lives don't compete with other people's lives or our uh, lives aren't as good as other people's lives because we only see these tiny little manufactured pieces. Absolutely. That's so true. I actually did an Instagram purge recently where I went through and removed everyone that didn't make me feel 
um, like great about where I was headed or what I was doing. I've been able to shift my mindset. A lot of that is mindset work. When you look at someone and you're like, I envy this person. That means they have something that you want. It does. You shouldn't feel bad about that. You should feel inspired about that. But anyone who was sort of like shamey or making other people like putting them down or anything like that, got rid of them. You clear out the content like that in your life. And it just really elevates you. Yeah. I interviewed another woman, Maya, and she said something very similar to you. She said, when things like this come up in you, when you look at somebody and you are envious of them, that is telling you a value that you are, that you want to achieve. So you look at that, you say, what value are they showing that I need to try to achieve in myself? And that way it's not like a comparison. It's like, oh, I, I want this. What can I do to work towards this? It's not beating yourself up for not being there. Absolutely. Chase the carrot. Don't like run away from the stick. <laughs> Chase the carrot. Don't run away from the stick. I'll remember that one. <laughs> um, so how you mentioned that you started doing, you took this class when you were in a part of your life where you were evaluating different parts of who you were and what you were doing as far as your job. So what did this do for you? How did that help you during this part of your journey? That's a good question. I think the biggest takeaway for me was that it really helped me build trust in myself and pride in myself pride that I could face some fears and fear of judgment of others, fear of potentially bombing, fear of potentially not being as funny as I thought. And I did it. And not only did I survive it, but I really enjoyed it. I had fun with it and kind of thrived through it. And I trusted myself in the moment. That is one of the most critical things that I've learned in terms of confidence is if you can trust yourself that you're going to respond in any given moment in alignment with your inner knowing and your truth and who you are, then there's no need to worry. There's no need to over plan and you can walk into any room feeling prepared. How did it help you with your perfectionism? Cause that's a really hard one to get over. <laughs> I mean, It honestly helped so much. I've had so many other experiences that have helped me there, but it helped me realize that there's still value that people get out of something, even whenever it's not perfect. I didn't have rolling laughter for seven minutes straight in my bed, but I did have enough laughter to where I know I brought joy to people's lives. That's all that matters is that you're contributing something, right? Were there ever times, and I think this is part of getting over perfection, and this is where this question comes from, especially in improv, were there times afterwards, like after an improv bit that you were like, oh, I should have said this. This would have been a better answer. This would have been a better thing to say. Oh, yeah. You know, I was fortunate in this experience where I chose to focus on all of the things that did go well, because that is a way to build a great bit, right? To focus on the things that work well and keep them. And then you can decide to release the rest, or you can decide to try something new or different with it. Mm -hmm. So focusing on keeping what works and then releasing what doesn't, instead of beating yourself up and being like, Oh, that could have gone so much differently. Um, just leaning into, to the, the forward, how you apply it moving forward is key. So tell me about how you work with people. You are a life alignment and business launch coach. What is that? Yes. So I help people who have a dream develop the mindset, the clarity, the commitment, and the strategy to actually make their dreams a reality. 
it sounds so simple, but so often we spend our time more passively experiencing our life than actively designing it to be what we want. Sometimes we don't even know what we want. So I guide people on that journey. What and is then passively, in, can you give me an example? What is passively experiencing your life? Yes. Passively experiencing. I saw this meme the other day and it was kind of funny, but also a little triggering because it's exactly what we don't want in life. It was, um, honestly at this point, I'm not even doing anything in my life. I'm just taking everything that comes at me and being like, okay, so this is what my life is today. It's just reacting to everything and just being like, okay, well I got fired today. So I guess that's happening. Like, you know, I'm getting this text. It's being reactionary to everything, not outwardly initiating anything intentionally and leaning into escape habits. Escape habits are overusing things like TV, poor health, food, sleeping way too much, like leaning into any habits to help you escape your life with the intention of like getting away from it and not leaning into it and not doing it in some sort of moderation that actually leaves you feeling good afterwards. Yeah. That was going to be my question. How do you know that you've got like, cause me, I love me some Netflix. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like I love me some Netflix and some Cheez-Its. So like when, how can you figure out like, okay, this is gone from being something that I do as a treat to myself to close out the end of my day to being like, I really can't stop eating these damn Cheez-Its and watching Netflix. Yeah. The one question to ask yourself is how does this make me feel? How do I feel in it and after it? And if you feel good, good for you. But if you feel like, I feel like crap if I binge watch like seven hours of TV because I'm like, what I just do with my life? Mm -hmm. And that's not to judge like other people should or shouldn't feel that way. But it's just listening to yourself and being like, do I feel good about what I just did or not? Interesting. Okay. So that would be conquering that passive way of doing it. So how do you tell people, how do you move somebody from like a passive way of life to what's the other word for it? Like a strategic actively designing it. Um, Yeah. So first as awareness, just in, for me, it was this awakening a few years ago that my life was eat, drink, work, sleep, and digital screen escape on repeat. Like that was my life. And I sort of did this retreat where I was reflecting back and I was having a hard time thinking about what goals I achieved or what my favorite memories were, what I was most proud of. So step one is just awareness of where you're at and clarity on whether that's where you want to be or not, or if you're headed in the direction you want to be and establishing what it is you actually want. And then it's about unlocking some subconscious programming that we all have that keeps us playing small. Mm-hmm. One thing I'll say is a lot of times I ask people this one question and it brings up their actual real dream. And that question is if you could be 100% successful at anything in life, everyone would love you for it. And you would make so much money from it. What would it be? And you see them light up mm-hmm. and they tell you this thing and then they get depleted and you watch their body language and it crumbles and they start listing all of their butts, yeah. all the butts. So unblocking all of those butts is critical in order to move on to the strategy and then most important, the action and commitment. Do you use some of the things you learned taking these classes in doing the, in doing those strategies? Yeah, I would absolutely say that the releasing of the perfectionism, the leaning into knowing that failure, especially from the stand-up scenario is a part of the journey to ultimate success. You literally will not learn what joke 
is going to really hit and land and be the funniest in your HBO special down the road, unless you go out and have hundreds, thousands of things that don't work out. Mm -hmm. Failure is a part of the journey to growth. And whenever I tell that story to clients and share some of the things that I learned there, it kind of grounds them. And it's not just comedy where you have to know what works and what doesn't work. And you have to retool it over and over again. One of my favorite authors is David Sedaris. And I went to go see him speak at the Boston Symphony. This was years ago, but he was working on a new book. Some of the stories he read were from older books. He knew when all the laughs would be. But when he was reading from the text that was potentially going into the new book, every time we laughed as an audience, he marked the page. And then when he said a line that he thought was going to get a laugh and it didn't, he made another annotation like, okay, this isn't hitting as well. And it made me wonder, he's on a tour right now. How many times has he done this to figure out what is the perfect way to tell that story? So it's not just comedy. I mean, we use comedy because that's what you did and because that's what's the most obvious, but it's for anybody. It's for anybody who's doing something and needs to break it apart to make sure that it works and needs to write it and rewrite it. And I had, when I was writing my book, I was part of this group of you know writers and I had a woman who called first drafts shitty babies. And she said, Everybody writes a first draft of their book or a chapter or anything they're working on, a blog post, whatever it is. And they look at it and they're like, oh, this is terrible. This is such shit. But when you have a baby, you don't go, oh, this is such a shitty baby. It shits its pants, doesn't know how to walk. It doesn't talk. It doesn't like, doesn't even know what its own hands are. What a shitty baby. I think we're just so used to the idea that everything's such a shitty baby that we don't realize that it takes time to grow things. And like, not everything comes out perfect the first time. Exactly. You are essentially a shitty baby at every single thing in life that you try for the first time. Yes. Like, like the first time I tried to write my name or walk, I sucked at it, but I wasn't like tossed out into the streets for it. And we should right. give ourselves the same grace as adults. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so true. Any other lasting things that you've taken away with you from that experience into business, into working with your clients, things that really resonate with your clients that you know now are true because you've had this experience it's that you've pushed yourself out of your comfort zone? Yeah, I think the fact that discomfort is a requirement for growth and you can totally change how you physically experience discomfort or fear or nerves by reframing in your mind what it means to you. So whenever I was about to go on that stage, I was jittery. My body was like freaking out. I was shaking a little bit. And I thought, man, I am so excited to try this out versus I am so afraid I'm going to mess up. Yeah. Total shift. Yeah. So what was that? What was the feeling like when you delivered a line and everybody laughed? I felt on top of the world. It yeah. was a huge high. And the very first thing that I see is this plaque. And it says, the 110 deaths of Mount Washington. I'm like, is this motherfucker trying to get rid of me? <laughs> he, my boyfriend, we'll call him Dustin, because that that is in fact his real name. <laughs> he comes over. I can imagine. And I think people need to know that you won't feel that. You won't feel on top of the world. You won't feel that high 
unless you really put yourself out there and fail a couple times and know what it's like to not get it right. And then what it's like to get it right. Well said. Well, Jerry, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad we met. I'm so glad that you, you brought this subject to me. Thank you so much. I'm really happy we met and I was so happy to talk about something I don't often get to talk about on this show with you. So thank you. You are welcome. Isn't Jerry great? The past four episodes of the Confidence series have had so many overlapping themes, but one thing that keeps coming up over and over again is our need to move past perfectionism. When we learn that everything doesn't have to be perfect, that there is actually tremendous value and opportunity in things that are not perfect, we can begin to take bigger risks because we know that we will survive whatever we take on. Failure shouldn't be seen as something to avoid. We should be taught that there are valuable lessons to be learned each and every time we fail. There is a TED Talk by Kinetic Effect, and within the lines of the talk, they say, History favors the risk takers. Only those who risk going too far can actually find out how far we can actually go. You'll never read about anyone throughout history who successfully inspired change because they followed the crowd, because they played it safe, because they cared too much about what other people thought of them. Think about all the people at the top of their game who inspire you, and then think about how many times they have failed on their journey to becoming great. Michael Jordan, arguably the world's best basketball player, was cut from his high school basketball team, but that obviously didn't stop him. In his professional career, he missed more than 9,000 shots, lost almost 300 games. 26 times he was trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed it. He failed over and over and over again, and that's why he's the greatest. Now, think about what stretching your wings and failing might do for you. Now, on to the cocktail of the day, which I picked for all the times you hashtag nailed it and failed miserably at trying something for the first time. The drink is the rusty nail. Get it? Nailed it. For decades, this drink was really in vogue. I remember my stepdad ordering these when I was a kid when we would go out to dinner. It's a simple combination of scotch and the scotch-based liquor drambuie. And drambuie is a word derived from Gaelic, meaning the drink that satisfies. There's no consensus around where this drink originated from, the recipe where it originated from, but some say it was invented in 1937 for the British industry's fair trade show. And cocktail lore has it that it was a favorite drink of the Rat Pack, especially Sinatra. The recipe is simple one and a half ounces of scotch whiskey and three-fourths of an ounce of drambuie. Add the scotch and the drambuie into a mixing glass with ice and stir until well chilled and then strain into a rocks glass over one large ice cube. As always, thank you for listening. Don't forget to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and I will see you next week. Cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works.